Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Open your Bibles together with me to the book of Isaiah. If uh, you open the Bible right in the middle, you're usually somewhere in the book of Psalms, which is the longest book in the Old Testament. And then just keep going to the right and you'll find Isaiah. If you hit Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you've gone too far. But after the book of Psalms, if you hit the book of uh, Song of Solomon, please keep going. I'm not getting into that this morning. It's just after that. And it's the book of Isaiah. It's a big book. It's 66 chapters long. And I want to show you something from the very beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1. And then it was initially presented in one scroll. I want to show you something from the very end because they both roll up together to make sense of this one big book. As we prepare to read God's Word, let's pray together. God, eternal Show us now in this very moment that all things are shadows and you alone are substance. Assure us now in this moment of the preaching of your word that though all things are shifting, you are a steady anchor. Teach us now in this service of worship that all things are ignorance, but you are perfect wisdom. Convict us now, not so much about the circumstances around us, but about the character of Christ to be formed in us. Amen. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through maybe 6, and then we'll go to the end of the book and I'll show you how it, how it resolves. There's a motif, there's a theme, there's like a question mark. In Isaiah chapter 1. And through the course of 66 books, Isaiah, this fiery prophet, is going to hammer the top bent end of that question mark into an exclamation point. And he'll land it in the last couple of chapters. And he gives us, like the literary genius that he is, this hint because he repeats the same Hebrew phrase, the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth, in the beginning of the book and then in the end of the book. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens! And give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel." They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Here the Lord God says to his people, Why won't you repent? Why do you pollute your lives with so much sin? And he calls heaven and earth to witness against his people that they've refused the Holy One of Israel and that their lives are devastated because of it. Now, if you can find the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66, the other end of the scroll, this question, this riddle, this problem is answered, is resolved by the end. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. And we have the same motif and the same Hebrew phrase. He calls the heaven and the earth 
This time not to witness his people's iniquity, but look what he says in 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man will die a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old will be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall no longer labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessing of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they even call, I'm going to answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. From the opening of a call to heaven and earth that everyone kills everyone and everyone's greedy for sin, here he calls in a new heaven and a new earth and he says no one hurts anyone and no one pursues the iniquity of sin anymore. And then in the very last chapter, chapter 66, verse 22, There's our Hebrew phrase again, calling on the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 66, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. From the opening question mark, from the opening pain where heaven and earth are called upon to witness against Judah for how corrupt she is and how murderous she is and how covered with blood her hands are, we have a new heaven and a new earth so transformed by the shalom of God that there is no more bloodshed. The vision is so recreated that now the new heavens and the new earth have the joy of unending worship. How do we get from that beginning, 66 chapters later, to that end? How do we get from that troubling question mark to a hammered out exclamation point where the lion dwells with the lamb and where nation no longer is at war against nation? How do we get from the awesome threat of God's holiness in chapter 1 to the assurance that his people rest in the light of his holy love in chapter 65 and 66. This is what chapters 2 through 64 show us. They show us not only the depth of our sinfulness and not only the height of God's holiness, but the balance of the book of Isaiah shows us nothing less than this. The earth shattering, cosmos recreating lengths to which our God will go to redeem his unworthy people. He will create a righteous people out of a hell-deserving people, and he will do so by sending the suffering servant, his very self, his very son, to die in their place. We begin with historical Judah so corrupt and so under judgment that heaven and earth and even Sodom and Gomorrah witness against God's people. And we finish with an end-time city of God where there is no sin and only holy delight in the very presence of God where God dwells with his people. 
Isaiah takes us into the height of God's holiness and into the depth of our sinfulness and into the only solution to this situation, which is redemption by the blood of the Son of God. Isaiah's a beautiful book. I've often thought that it's sort of a photo finish with the Psalms in Isaiah for which book to me is the most beautiful in its Hebrew poetry. The book of Isaiah is a diverse book. It has prose and poetry. It has narratives about kings and battles and horses. It has dramatic siege scenes where are the people going to starve or not. It has, uh, it has hymns in it. It has songs in it. It has children named to symbolize what's happening in the historical headlines of the day. Isaiah has some of the most terrifying descriptions of God's judgment in all of Scripture. And Isaiah has the most comforting descriptions of the new heavens and the new earth that we find anywhere other than the book of Revelation. Isaiah has a larger vocabulary than almost any other book. I don't mean that it's longer, but I mean the number of words that Isaiah uses is a greater number of words than almost any other book. You know, because I'm a preacher, my vocabulary is sometimes complimented and sometimes critiqued. All I have is, what do I have when I'm up here but words? A carpenter has a, a saw and a hammer. I have words. Isaiah uses 2,186 different Hebrew words. By comparison, the book of Psalms, which is longer and is a very creative book, only uses 2,170 different Hebrew words. So Isaiah even trumps the book of Psalms with the diversity of his vocabulary, which shows us the creativity and imagery and richness of what it takes to show the height of God's holiness, the depth of our sinfulness, and the lengths to which God will go to redeem his people. Isaiah is a book you need to know because it is the book... It's not the book most quoted in the New Testament. It's not the Old Testament book most quoted in the New Testament. That's the book of Psalms. That gets the gold medal. But Isaiah comes in a strong second and gets the silver. Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament and almost more than any other book with the single exception of the Psalms. In verse 1, Isaiah is called into prophetic ministry. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah is called into prophetic ministry in the year that King Uzziah died, which is datable by us to 740, let's say, 740 before Christ. And he ministers until the death of Sennacherib, which is datable by us to at least maybe 681 B.C., which gives him a ministry of at least 60 years. 60 years! This fiery prophet, poet, condemned sin and lifted up the righteousness and holiness of God. He ministered during the reigns of four kings. You see them listed in verse 1. To literally translate the Hebrew, we could say Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. No, we couldn't. It's the... He lists those four kings under whose reigns Isaiah prophesied. The first one listed, Uzziah, was a, a, a prosperous king. He, 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 he had given them military victory and financial prosperity, but during his reign, that prosperity slipped them into spiritual decline. And then Uzziah's son, Jotham, uh, was a builder and a fighter, and Assyria came up against Judah during his reign. And then we have uh, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And the difference between them is Ahaz was so afraid of the Assyrian threat and so distrusting of God that that third one listed Ahaz, he made a deal with Assyria and he offered payments to them. And he even put an altar to the Assyrian idols in the temple. 
after him, Hezekiah came around. That's the fourth one listed. And he reigned for almost 30 years, and he was a reformer because he refused to pay the tribute to Assyria, and Isaiah helped Hezekiah to, to push against them even when they invaded God's people. It was almost like Hezekiah was wondering if he would surrender, and Isaiah said, no, don't surrender. God's got our back here, and you just stand against the Assyrian threat. All the ups and downs of the nation and all the ups and downs of the people of God. So, church, here is the part of the sermon on a cold Sunday morning when you have the right to ask the inevitable question. Why are you telling me about Sennacherib and Hezekiah? What does that have to do with inflation and where my kids are going to go to school? Because what happened happens. I suppose that's true if you're reading Shakespeare or Robert Frost. It is most certainly true if you are reading the living Word of God. What happened happens. These things were written for our instruction. Though they happened to them in the former ages, they are written that now in the end of the ages, we, by reading them, might have hope. The genius of the living word of God is that what happened happens and a confused world needs a clarified church. And the confused world of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah needed a clarified people of God who would look to the Lord. A confused world needs a clarified church, and a doubting world needs a believing church. In Racine Bible, a fearful world needs a fearless church. We are fearless because we only fear God. And when we fear God, we become fearless against all other tyrants and all other threats. A confused world needs a clarified church. A doubting world needs a believing church. A fearful world <clears throat> needs a fearless church. A church that trusts God. A church that sees God. A church that worships God. Every single soul in the world is swept away by the passing away of the world and the latest this and the latest that. Where will they find someone who isn't swept away by the passing away of the world if they do not find it in the people of God? Essentially what happened during Isaiah's lifetime is what always happens. God's people have God's promises. And God simply says to his people, hey people, a lot of crazy stuff's about to go down. Trust me, he says. Stay loyal to me, he says. Keep my word, he says. Worship me, even if they're going to take off your head. Worship me. But instead of aligning themselves with God's purposes and God's promises, God's people start to look around at what's happening in the world around them. And they start to look around at the world's solutions to what is happening in the world around them. And this is to distrust the promise of Almighty God. And God's people actually start to mimic the fears of the world. And when a fearful world finds a fearful church, what hope is there for the world? Judah aligned themselves with Assyria instead of trusting in the living God. And Isaiah called that what it is and pulled them back from that brink. So these four kings listed went kind of up and down with Assyria, either standing against them or giving in to them. And finally, Isaiah puts a backbone in Hezekiah and says, don't pay him the tribute and don't surrender the city and watch what God will do. How did Isaiah know that he could say that to Hezekiah? This is how. Isaiah saw God. And once you see God, 
then you will see Assyria for what it is. Or China, or your bank account, or your cancer diagnosis, I'm not kidding. I'm not being unsympathetic to the bad news that you receive. But once you see God, you see every Assyria of this deflated, dusty old world for what it is. The clarity of who God is dissipates the confusion in the world around us. And church, I want to preach through Isaiah because a confused world needs a clarified church and nothing will clarify us like a vision of God. Little Judah, <laughs> the little Judah like Israel today, surrounded, surrounded by enemies. And little Judah said, our God is the Lord of all creation. And the Assyrian gods must bow down and be pulverized before our God. Though the Assyrian war machine was 2,000 times more prosperous than Judah's. Maybe it wasn't difficult to believe that our God is greater when everything was prosperous under all of, you know, what David did and conquering and what Solomon did in amassing wealth. Maybe it didn't take much faith to believe that God was the Lord of all creation, but what about when that prosperity didn't last and that victory didn't last and Assyria rose up and it was very clear that, that they were way more powerful than God's people. What happened, what happened, happens. The ancient is ever contemporary when we preach through the word of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 8. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, and I just picked Isaiah chapter 8 because I, I double dog dare you to look at Isaiah 8 and tell me this is about something that happened so long ago that it has nothing to do with us. I dare you to say that. Isaiah 8 is so contemporary, so contemporary. Isaiah 8 verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, I'm in 8.11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Church, a fearful world needs a fearless church. A world that is walking in their way does not need a church that walks in that way. The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear. Oh, church, do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread and he will become to you a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble on it. They'll fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken away. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. Look at how the Lord is described in verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Yet I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, all that means is the, 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 the worldly ways that worldly people figure out how to deal with their problems. Then look at what he says in the middle of verse 19. Should not a people inquire of their God? What a question, Isaiah. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. In this absolutely atrociously bold move, Isaiah says, open back up the Bible. And if it doesn't give you the answer, it's because there's no light in the word of God. 
They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged. And they'll speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom, thrusting even into thick darkness. We need Isaiah because the world is falling apart. We need Isaiah because it seems to me our nation is falling apart. We need Isaiah because there are covenant members of this congregation whose families seem to be falling apart. And we need Isaiah because we cannot fix these problems, which is to say we cannot fix these problems without God, which is to say we cannot fix these problems until we look to the law and the testimony, until we stop fearing and calling conspiracy what the world fears and what the world calls conspiracy, until we look to the living God. The ultimate, most important matters remain unresolvable. The deepest riddles remain unsolvable. And the sharpest, most painful problems in your life remain intractable if God is not present and if God is not speaking. But what if he is? And what if he has? This is verse 12. Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Don't, don't fear what this people fear, but the Lord of hosts is holy. This is what he means in the middle of verse 19 when he says, should not a people inquire of their God when everything around you is falling apart? Are you really gonna look to the people who make everything fall apart to, to give you the answer of how and why and everything's falling apart? Should not a people inquire of their God to the teaching and to the testimony? If they won't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. It is Isaiah chapter 40 that says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. We sang it in that precious hymn this morning. We blossom and flourish like leaves on a tree. We all wither and we all perish, but naught changeth thee. To come back around and be clear, there aren't, there aren't verses about the United States of America in 2022 in the book of Isaiah. Bible's not written about America. We're not a theocracy. But there is wisdom that cuts through all of the political turmoil in this country or in Cabardino Bulcaria, if my precious brother Victor was preaching through Isaiah at the same time that I was. Because what happened happens. And because God is still God. And because ruefully, the people of God still do the same baloney that they've been doing all along. And there's a way out. There are lessons here about our nation's current political turmoil, though there aren't verses that are telling us what's going to happen in America. But there's certainly a biblical precedent here for understanding that spiritual, that somehow spiritual blindness and political enslavement go hand in hand. There's a causative relationship from the latter, from, from the former to the latter. Just as Isaiah assures us that political solutions will always be insufficient until the living God, Yahweh, deals with the heart. For them, why are we talking about Sennacherib? Why are we talking about Hezekiah? Why are we talking about ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age stuff? Because, because people, the answer was that for them, the Assyrian threat was the point at which they needed to decide, will God save me or must I develop a strategy of self-salvation? 
What about you? What about you? You tell me. Will God save you? Or is everything you've ever learned because you have to figure out a strategy of self-salvation? For them, the Assyrian threat was where they had to determine what is more important. Staying safe so that I can live to fight another day or honoring God come what may. What about you? What's more important? Preserving your bank account, preserving your physical safety, or honoring the living God no matter what? The Anglican writer, I first became acquainted with him when he was teaching English at uh, Wheaton College, Alan Jacobs. He has written several books that have been helpful to me, and he's given me these two little phrases that I've often used through the years. The phrases are personal density and temporal bandwidth. I'll just take 60 seconds and explain that to you. Personal density means, is the latest thing that comes up on your phone going to knock you down and blow you over or not? That's what personal density means. Are you a reed shaken by whatever latest notification comes in, or are you a mighty oak? Where are you in personal density? Are you paper thin, so whatever sways is just going to roll you around like a tumbleweed, or are you a solid granite fixed? Personal density. Will the latest news story make you completely lose your mind? Or to the, to the teachings of the church, how about this? Will the newest popular teaching of Christianity that has a whole lot to do with some weirdo's hot take on this than it has anything to do with sound doctrine and the word of God, will the latest fad in Christianity blow you away so that you'll be tossed to and fro by it or not? Do you have the personal density to withstand what's coming? And what's helpful about putting these two phrases together is that in the, the book that I read by Jacobs, he said personal density is dependent upon temporal bandwidth. And he's talking about biblical knowledge there. In other words, if all you do is check what's on your social media feed today, you will never have temporal bandwidth. Therefore, you'll never have personal density. If all you do is watch the news tonight, if all you do is watch the Los Angeles Rams dominate, then, then, you know, all, that's all you're going to have. You're a creature of the moment. But if you, how do you gain, how do you gain personal density? It's if you have a temporal bandwidth where you understand what happened, happens. And my answer today to the latest thing on my social media feed is going to have a whole lot more to do with the book of 1 Corinthians than it does with whatever advice I can get today. And my answer to the latest thing on weird Christianity is going to have a whole lot more to do with the, with the book of Galatians. And what's happening in my personal life has a whole lot more to do with what David said when he was at En Gedi and what Isaiah said when he held counsel with Hezekiah. This is why we need the, the, this is why we need to go back and get back into what happened then, because what happened happens, and it's only in understanding who God is and how He has revealed Himself through the bandwidth of time and making that our own, so that I'm with David and Getty, and I'm with the Corinthians in that crazy church. That's what gives me the personal, the personal density to not be blown away and confused by this and that and the other thing. In a world where people who should be confident in God are freaking out, we need Isaiah. In a world where everybody in the world deals with crises with the same sort of panic and the same sort of grasping at straws, the world needs a church that does not exhibit the same level of panic 
and that does not exhibit the same idolatrous, myopic fascination with grasping at straws. We have God. We need Isaiah's vision. We have had enough of human answers to human situations on a global scale, on a medical scale, on a social, political scale, or on that personal scale of my struggling marriage or my cancer diagnosis. Look again with me at Isaiah chapter 51. I just, like I said, almost picked this one at random like I did at Isaiah 8 because it's, it explains our topsy-turvy reactions to the latest things when we have no temporal bandwidth. Isaiah 51 Verses 12 through 16. Listen to what happens when you get a lock on who God is. Isaiah 51, verse 12, shows us what happens when we get a lock on who God is. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker? Who did a couple little things like this? Stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, and yet you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of some grasshopper oppressor, some man who's going to fade like grass, and you're freaking out all day because of the wrath of the oppressor. When he sets himself to destroy, where's the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. If we could almost subtract from the poetry to show you the the radiance of the confidence. If God just said, you are my people. Well, okay, but who are you, God? And how does that give me assurance? You see the Hebraic doublet that precedes that statement of you are my people. I have established the heavens and I've laid the foundations of the earth. So if I tell you that you're mine, why on earth would you freak out like the godless people around you? This is what God is saying. And Isaiah says it with a vigor and a diversity and a beauty that candidly has fascinated me all my life. He says in verse 12, why are you afraid of a man who dies or the son of man who's made like grass? Little Judah had always been so small. And this was good because compared to the nations around her, she was tiny. But see, church, Judah was never meant to arch forward in world history by the same mechanisms as the nations around her. And this this is the lesson that we need in church growth. Church is never meant to progress itself along the axes of worldly power and worldly means and worldly wisdom. The church will always be at her strongest when she is the most dependent upon God And when whatever the Caesar of the day is, is at his most vehement of how little God is. Watch what happens. Will the church trust herself? Or will she look to Assyria and the nations around her? Will the people of God respond to the events of the day with the same worldly wisdom that everyone around her is addicted to? Whom will we trust, God or ourselves? That choice is always present with us. Like I've been saying, whether it's your personal medical diagnosis or it's your family threatening to fracture or it's your legitimate concern over the state of our nation or geopolitical events. Look at Isaiah 40. Some of you would come after me if I didn't at least open to Isaiah 40 in my introductory chapter, in my introductory sermon on Isaiah, because I know how you feel about this text. 
He says in verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, lift it up, fear not, and say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Maybe just skip down to verse 21. Do you not know? Verse 21, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. I want to bring back this Isaianic vocabulary and his, whatever it is, 1,280 different Hebrew terms. And I want to bring back this precious Isaianic statement of grasshoppers. The next time you get that text that makes your blood pressure boil or you get that news update that makes you freak out, just grasshoppers. Putin's a grasshopper. Your senior pastor is a grasshopper. I'm nothing. I'll get squished like a bug someday. Then I'll rise again. Then I'll rise again with a beauty that the seed can't even see what the full stock's going to be like. It's all grasshoppers compared to God. And we puff out our chests and we think our little grasshopper solution is... So what if your grasshopper solution is better than the next grasshopper solution? You're still a grasshopper. This is the correction we need. For it is ever our sin and our lack of personal density and our dearth of temporal bandwidth that we lean on the wrong solutions. We cozy up to the ideas and institutions that the world offers. And we opt for solutions that appeal to our emotions, which have been wrongly catechized by Hollywood, and then we're so far down that road that we can't even see straight. <laughs> the world will never make sense until we see God for who he is and everything from our emotional intelligence to our integrity of our obedience to our mindset to our worldview is clarified by who God is. This is the crossroads where we are at. How will you respond to the next calamity? With a calm reliance on the living God who never fails or in the frenzy of self-help? How will you respond to the next threat? With loyalty to God or with a calculating, shifting, I wonder how I can stay safe? Will we trust what God says? The theme of the book of Isaiah is, the theme of the book of Isaiah is God. God. Isaiah 48 verse 11 is to me one of the most precious verses in the Hebrew scripture. Uh, precious maybe isn't the wrong word, is, is the wrong word. Isaiah 48 verse 11 is to me one of the most uh, paradigmatic, or that is uh, perspective-altering or uh, central theological verses of the, of the Hebrew Scripture. Because Isaiah 48, verse 11, is God answering the question, God, why are you doing this and not that? God, why, did you, why, why are you sending people to hell? God, why are you sending people to heaven? God, why are you allowing this and why are you allowing that? Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Oh, and I want to say friend because I mean this in a friendly way. Friend, uh, as long as you see that last line, of God saying, my glory I will not give to another. 
If you see that last line as anything but the greatest news in the universe, then you're still looking at God from eyes of flesh, like God's just puffing his chest and trying to be better than somebody else. But for those who know who God is, for God to say that he won't compromise his glory, that is the only thing that sustains us in the hardest of times is that we know that God has not given his glory to anything or anyone else. And I, I've been there with you when we have wept because we prayed for healing and it didn't come. And I don't know how to answer the question, why did God heal that husband and not your husband? But I know that God does what he does because he is God and he'll never let go of his glory. And turn back a couple chapters to Isaiah 45. Maybe this will be the last one I'll show you. Maybe not. I might keep you till 2 p.m. That's my prerogative. <laughs> Isaiah 45, verses 20. I'm just a grasshopper, but I might as well have fun while I'm doing it. <laughs> Isaiah 45, verse 22. Ask the question, why do I need to be saved? Why do some people go to heaven? Why do some people go to hell? Why does God do what he does? Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me, this is God speaking, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So the last line there in verse 22, if you circle the word for, there are what? Eight, I am God and there is no other. There are eight words behind that grounding word or that purposive word for. And those eight words behind that are Personally, that's the best shot I have at answering your impossible question of why a certain person didn't get saved or another person didn't get healed or what, 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 what is this and what is that and why does it happen? It's because God is God and there is no other God. I read a book about preaching at least once a year to try to stay sharp in my field of profession and the one I'm reading right now, it's actually not that good of a book. I'm not really enjoying it. But I did get a highlight that, I, that was worth the price. <laughs> the, guy said, uh, the guy said that uh, the true use of interpretation is to get rid of interpretation and leave us in the living company of the actual author. Preaching is public interpretation and application. If I interpret improperly, you ought to get rid of me. If I interpret heretically, you ought to get rid of me. Preaching is nothing less than interpretation and application done in public. But what is the purpose of that interpretation? It is nothing less than to bring the persons who are hearing the, the necessary interpretation into the living presence of the author and to leave them together. The reason you need interpretation is because you need God. And without proper interpretation, I don't mean this insultingly, I would say it to me, but I'm the one talking to you, so I'm saying it to you. Without proper interpretation, you will be guided by your natural hunches about God. And I'm sorry, but I'm not even actually sorry. Your natural hunches about God are wrong. God's not who you wish he is, who you dream he is, who you think he is. God is God and there is no other. And the reason we need interpretation is so that we will stop being guided by our natural hunches about God and instead we will meet the living God in all of his, for, in all of his fearful, shattering splendor. And when you meet God, well, what will happen then? What will happen then? What will happen then? I don't know if it's funny or sad. I think it's funny and sad, which means it's ironic. People seem, people seem to think that a pastor's job is to protect them from God. Like, soften out God's hard edges, <laughs> Take away the confusing stuff. 
could you, could, you, could you help me fit God into what I want out of my life? You're probably not egotistical enough to say that, but be honest, you're saying it in your heart. Could you help me fit God into, see, this is where I want to go. So could you help me get God to get me there? Could you help me get God to get me where I want to go? And the answer is no. No. Isaiah has taught me that my job is distinctly different from that. My job is to open up the word of God to you because in his word is where you meet his people. And in in my public proclamation ministry, I want to be guided by the logos of clarity of application, by the ethos of personal integrity where I'm applying in my own life what, what I'm teaching to you. But my job is to bring you to God and God to you and to leave you there with them. And when you actually meet God, he will terrify you. He will. And he will shatter you. He will. But he won't leave you. And after he has shattered everything that's the you that is built on your hunches and dreams about what you wish you were, he will not leave you there. He will terrify you and shatter you. But then he will rebuild you. Not into who you always pictured yourself being, but into the very image of the suffering servant, the Son of God, because he will conform you to look like Jesus. To look like Jesus. Will you meet God in the ancient prophecy of Isaiah? Let's pray. Living God, show us in the public preaching of your word that all things are shadows and you alone are substance. Show us in the meditation upon your word that all our ways are folly, but that in the light of your truth we have received an eternal wisdom from you. So let us meet you, God. Knock us down and then rebuild us that we might know Jesus Christ and that as a church, knowing Jesus, we might make him known to a fearful and confused population all around us. For your glory, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.